0: Did you know Jesus' apostles were actually a part of a crazy mushroom cult? It's true. It's true. Jesus is actually a mushroom God, and his apostles were disciples of a mushroom God, and they wanted to make sure that everyone knew that Jesus was the the mushroom God that we need to serve. Okay, that sounds crazy, right? Well, this is an actual claim that one of my friends came up to me and said, hey, you should read this book. It wasn't even a religion. He was just so influenced by this book. He said, you should read this book because this book has all the right answers. The Bible's full of these secret code messages about this, this you know, Hebrew mushroom cult. Obviously, that is crazy. That is insanity. Everybody has their crazy ideas. Everybody who's a skeptic of what the Bible actually says, has their own opinions and ideas of what this is. This got me thinking, though. When my friend approached me and he said, hey, man, you should listen to this. It's got me thinking, like, okay, l- let me look into this. Now, I wasn't questioning, but I was just like, I'm, I'm curious. I want to know about this. So I read his silly book, and we discussed, and he realized I'm an idiot, and he completely went against this book, and he's like, this is crazy, this is nonsense, I'm not going to believe any of this. Good. We checked, we, we, we fixed that problem. Well, have you ever thought that what you have in your hands, is this a trustworthy document? Is the Bible you have in your hands, is this something that you can believe is from God? You're going to get that question a lot from your friends, from your family. Do you know how to defend it? Can you say yes and why? Do you know how to respond to the the questions and the probes and the problems that the skeptics bring up? Something all of us need to think about. All of us as Christians need to think about how we can defend this as God's actual words. Because there's so many skeptics, there's so many false teachers in the world that we live in today. They're going to poke you, they're going to prod you, they're going to question you. And you need to give an answer to the hope that is in you. You need to be able to defend this. I mean, you think about those who are in public school, I'm sure you get this answer a little bit more often than those that are in private school, but they're asking these these skeptical questions about the Bible, or they're bringing up their own silly opinions about what the Bible is. Teachers, you know, most of you seniors are heading off to college. You think you're going to get an easier time from your professors in college? No, harder. It's going to be more difficult. The skepticism of our world just keeps growing and growing, and people have all of these questions, and they're looking to the Christian, can you answer? Do you know how to defend why you believe what this says? I'm going to try to confuse you. Well, Peter had this problem, and he addressed this problem in 2 Peter Chapter 1. He had all of these false teachers that came into the church, and they were saying, hey, now the problem he was dealing with was, they didn't believe the second coming was happening. They said, that's a false doctrine. Don't listen to Peter. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But this was, this was widely spread orthodox. Jesus talked about his own coming. They said, no, 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 don't listen to all that. Peter's just trying to, to boost himself up and make his a name for himself. Well, let's look at the passage and see how Peter defends himself. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21 That's our text for today. I want you to open up your Bibles. I want you to look at this together. Let's look at what we call God's word in the text here. Peter says this, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty, right? So Peter's trying to say, hey, look, I didn't make any of this up. I didn't make this up. I'm not following crazy myths. I'm not following crazy stories. I saw it happen. I watched it happen. I witnessed Jesus. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Okay, that sounds confusing, but what Peter's talking about, he's talking about the transfiguration. He's saying, I saw Jesus in his power and glory, and that was a response. He was basically uh, defending, saying that was a, 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 a you know, foreshadowing of Jesus' return. That's what Peter's trying to say here. He's like, no, I witnessed it. I saw it happen, and he's proven to me that the second coming is coming by his, his transfiguration. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. You notice how he said we. Peter's not the only one here either, right? We had other apostles that were there witnessing the transfiguration of Christ. So he has people that can corroborate what he's saying here. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. Okay, let's stop there because it gets a little tricky after this. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Right? So not only are the eyewitnesses a great testimony, but we have the Bible. Right? And that's Peter at the time. He had some of the letters circulating right, in the New Testament that we have today, but he had all the Old Testament. But we have the entire Bible. We have the Old and the New. So we have a, especially for us, we have a more fully confirmed testimony. And then he goes on to say, uh, do well to pay attention as to a lamp Shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Okay, what he's saying there is that when Jesus does return, the the Bible, all these things, it's unnecessary because our faith becomes sight. We see it. It's here. It's good, right? It's shining in the dark place. All of these questions will be answered because Jesus will return. Verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Did you catch that? Peter's saying, I'm not making this up. This isn't my own, uh, you know, creation. I'm not interpreting this. I've not made up these prophecies. This is from God. God told, God talked through, or, uh, you know, inspired the words, and we'll talk about that, and he spoke through the Old Testament prophets. This is from God. Verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the inspiration of scripture. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But this was not something that the men just wrote letters and we were like, hey, we're going to trust those things. No. This is from God, the inspired word of God. The the word, the book you have in your hands right now or on your phone is from God, the written word of God. Well, we got to put that to the test. Because the whole idea is skeptics are going to push you. They're going to prod you. They're going to say, nope, that's false. And they're going to make up all of their crazy claims of why the Bible is what they think it is and not what you're claiming it to be. Well, all of this false teaching and questioning, can can we be sure that this is God's word? Yeah, we can. And you can be convinced that the Bible you hold in your hand undeniably contains the words of God. And today, we're going to look at four objections. Now, of course, there's many objections that we can look at that skeptics claim, and there's new objections coming up all the time, but these four objections, I think, are kind of foundational. You probably heard them a lot. Uh, You've probably heard them or experienced them. So the first two objections that we're going to look at fall under this first point. Write this down for point number one. Trust the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Trust the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. So we see Peter, right, he's, he's proclaiming that, look, I witnessed it. I saw it. And he's trying to prove to these false teachers that, no, you're wrong, because I witnessed it happen. Eyewitness testimony. And remember, he said, we. So there's not just Peter. There's multiple people that are involved in this eyewitness testimony. Just a couple examples. Write this down. John 6, 66 through 69. We just read this recently in our DBR, where Jesus is giving this uh, sermon, essentially, this teaching that was really hard for the people around them to believe. And a lot of the apostles, or not the apostles, sorry, the disciples that were with Jesus left. But then the apostles, the 12 disciples were like, where are we going to go? And that starts in verse 66. He says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is Peter's testimony. He's saying, no, we saw it. We trust that you are the one that has the words of eternal life. I trust what you are saying. So we see a testimony of an eyewitness from Peter right there. Acts 9. There's another example of an eyewitness testimony. Acts 9, verses 3 through 7. It says this. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, right? This is the conversion of Saul to Paul. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Verse 6, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So we see Paul having this encounter with Jesus. So Paul wrote most of the New Testament, as we believe, and he saw Jesus. He's an apostle. He witnessed it, the testimony of the eyewitnesses. We see just a couple examples. But the question is, can we trust those guys? Are we able to trust these guys, what they claim, what they say? Well, the first objection, write this down for the first objection. The apostles made it all up, to gain fame and fortune. The apostles, they, yeah, you know, they just wanted to be recognized. They just wanted to be known. Have you heard this? Have you heard this before? The apostles just wanted to be recognized. They wanted fame and fortune. Here's the problem with that. Here's the problem. They had so much more to lose than they had to gain. So much more to lose. Remember that the, the Christianity came out of a Jewish religion. So these guys, most of them Jews, were Uh, they faced, you know, persecution and problems from the Jewish community around them. And they were saying, hey, hey, they were basically changing the game of their religion. So that's like, like, let's say someone came up, preached a sermon, and said, you know what, guys? God told me that on Wednesdays, that's when we're going to start doing service. That's actually when Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, you know what? Those, uh, you know, that, that's, uh, uh, Sabbath day, this is, and this is literally what they did, that Sabbath day that you're, you know, you don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to worry about that anymore. You know, the Mosaic law, you don't have to follow that anymore. So, I mean, this is a big deal. Animal sacrifices, don't worry about that. We got an ultimate sacrifice, these apostles claimed. To the Jew, they were like, this is blasphemy, this is crazy. So they were persecuted for it. They lost touch with people around them. They risked Facing damnation, what do I mean by that? Because if they were wrong, they risk facing eternity in hell, if they were wrong about that. Of course, they were careful with what they were doing. They were confident with what they were doing. Second, if they made it all up, there'd be opposing eyewitnesses. Think about that. If they made all of this up, and they wrote all of this down, people who saw Jesus uh, feed 5,000 people, that never happened. Jesus fed 20 people with 20 fish and 20 pieces of bread. Well, that's not what happened. People corroborated it. They all agreed with the resurrection. They all agreed what happened there. There there would be opposing eyewitnesses that say, no, that's false, that's wrong, but there's not. We don't see that. How could the apostles succeed in spreading this message in the same location? If it was a lie, how would they be? Successful in spreading this message in that area, if it's a lie, with other people around them. Just because everyone was just quiet? No way. It's because they agreed. They saw it themselves, the other eyewitnesses. Third, there's this consistent agreement on the tradition of Jesus, right? All of these cities, all of these areas in this, this, this location... They all agreed on on who Jesus was. Nobody else was saying, yeah, there's this, Jesus was actually this. And there was not another city saying Jesus was actually this. And there weren't letters that they were saying, no, we follow these letters. We follow these disciples, these guys. No, they all said the four gospels, those are the ones that we're going to listen to. Because they knew it had authority, it had power. They knew that they were right because they agreed with what that was written was actually true. So the apostles couldn't have made it up. They couldn't have made it up. You'd think about if there were no eyewitnesses, if there was no eyewitnesses to this account, and this was just a made-up story, there was no eyewitnesses, there would be multiple Jesuses that people talked about. Does that make sense? There would be multiple Jesuses because people would be making up their own stories about who Jesus was if there were no eyewitnesses because there's no one to, to claim this is actually what's right. But there's not. We don't see that. We don't see that happen. We see universal agreement in that area. Fourth, the apostles' lives were filled with persecution. I already touched on that a little bit. Think about this. There's a lot of people today, other religions, uh, other cult groups, whatever it may be, that will die for something that they believe. They'll die for what they believe because they believe it, but they haven't seen it. They don't know if it's actually true. They haven't witnessed it with their eyes, right? Well, the apostles, why would they face imprisonment, being beaten, beaten, killed, if what they were being beaten and persecuted and killed for was a lie? If they knew it was a lie, why would they go to death for it? They wouldn't. They wouldn't embrace that persecution if what they saw or what they, what they were making up was a lie. They wouldn't, they wouldn't face that persecution. And all of these apostles, according to reliable historical tradition, were all killed, all martyred for their faith, except for John. John's the only one who got off the hook. But all the other apostles died for it. Because they knew what they believed was true. It was clear that they didn't make this up. They encountered the living God in Jesus Christ. They saw, this is the guy, this is the Messiah that the Old Testament prophesies about. This is the guy, and I witnessed it, and I'm willing to die for it. It's funny, Chuck Colson became famous for this quote, and you've probably heard it before, but just to give you a little background on Chuck Colson, he was trying to defend the, uh, the case of the resurrection. Okay, And he compared it to the Watergate scandal. And if you're not familiar with the Watergate scandal, the Watergate scandal was back in 1972, a big political controversy, big issue, right? Where essentially there was some burglars that, that busted into the Democratic Committee office, they started wiretapping phones, they started uh, you know, stealing documents, and President Nixon tried to cover it all up. He wanted to make sure this did not get out. He wanted to cover it all up. Well, there was 12 powerful political guys that were in on this lie, okay? How long did it take them to crack? A couple years, five, ten years, two weeks. It took them two weeks to crack. One guy cracked. Two weeks. Then it was a domino effect. They all started saying this was a lie. We made it all up because they were trying to cover their own skin. In fact, a reporter asked the first guy that cracked. He said, "Why did you? Why did you bring this up?" He said, "Well, I'm trying. I'm trying to save my own life. I'm trying to save my own career." So you. So Chuck Colson says this. He says this. Twelve men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them, except one, was beaten, tortured, and killed. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Chuck Colson's on to something there. Second objection. Write this down. Second objection. Objection number two. The Gospels were written way later than what the Christians claim. Did you know that the Gospels were written in 300 A.D.? In fact, it was all of, you know, I was talking to Pastor John. He was saying, you know, I was taught in class that they, were told, they told me that they were written in the Council of Nicaea. a bunch being 300 AD, they were like, oh yeah, let's, uh, let's write these gospels up and, and make it a big religion, make it a big thing. Okay, let's deal with this objection. The gospels were written way later than what we believe they were written. If the gospels were written way later than what the generation of Christ lived, we'd have so many issues. We'd have so many problems, right? If they were written, let's just say, because they're, you know, let's give Mark an example. He's written in the 50s, right? If Mark was written in the 50s, but skeptics are claiming, no, 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 Mark was written in 300. Well, we would have a lot of inaccuracies. We'd have a lot of inconsistencies. We'd have many exaggerations. People would start making up what their own belief of who Jesus was. We'd have a lot of issues. We'd probably have, we'd even have geographical issues, We'd have problems all over the place. In fact, here's the other thing. There'd be no longer surviving witnesses, right? We just talked about why it's good to have uh, you know, their eyewitness that saw it. Well, there'd be, there'd be no eyewitnesses in 300 AD to say, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened. The apostles didn't actually write the Gospels as well if we have this, if, if they wrote it in 300. Because they didn't live in 300. They lived in the first century, So now we have a big issue with the Bible if the Gospels were written in 300 A.D. We have a big issue there. But if we can prove that the Gospels were actually written in the first century and not in 300, well, then the testimony of the eyewitness just gets stronger, gets stronger and stronger. And it all kind of relies upon the dating in Acts, the dating in Acts. So the dating in Acts, we believe, is 62 A.D. And here's why, here's why. Luke has to be the author of Acts. So it, well, that's where we start. If Luke's the author in Acts, says that in Acts 1-1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with, that, uh, with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he's, we, Luke and Acts are this two-volume set that, that Luke wrote, okay? Luke most likely used Matthew and Mark as sources, Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, Luke was this awesome historian. In fact, he's called, even today, one of the best historians. He should be ranked super high up with the uh, great historians of even guys today. Well, if he used Matthew and Mark as sources, and he wrote Acts, the, the uh, dating of Acts is going to help us figure out, okay, were these written actually in the first century? In Mark 13, too, it says this, Jesus refers to the temple. He says, and Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus is referring to the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. 70 AD, that's when Mark wrote that. or That's when Mark referred, you know, 70 AD, it has to be written before that is what I'm saying. Mark has to be written before that. So if Mark is written before 70 AD and Luke used Mark as an example, right, then Mark has to be earlier in uh, the first century. So if we can date Acts rightly, we can date the the Gospels correctly. In Acts, there's three things that Acts doesn't include that are going to help us with this testimony. Three things that Acts doesn't include. The first thing is Acts doesn't talk about James dying. Acts doesn't talk about the martyrdom of James. Acts doesn't talk about the, the, the guy of the Jerusalem church. He died in 70 AD. We don't have any mention of that in Acts. You think if the focus of of Acts is in Jerusalem and the the guy of the Jerusalem church is there's no mention of him dying, well, then that probably means that it was written before he died in 70 AD. Okay? Acts also has no mention of the fall of Jerusalem. Remember the fall of Jerusalem? Fall of Jerusalem is a big deal. The temple, the Jerusalem. I mean, that's where this religion started. If there if there's no mention of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., well then we know that it's before that. It's before 70 A.D. Acts does not mention the Christian persecutions of Nero, so that's a big deal, right? You think a great historian like Luke, if there if there was these persecutions going on by Nero, right? They, so many people died in this. So many Christians were targeted in this. If why would Luke not address this in Acts if it was written? Before, So we know, we can be confident that it was written before. Another helpful piece of evidence here, early church fathers testified to the Gospels. So this helps us with the claim that people make about, oh yeah, 200, 300, way later on, not in the first century. But these early church fathers were, you know, in 150 AD, 170 AD, 180 AD, Right? So they were just in the second generation, the second uh, century. So they quote the Gospel of Mark. They quote the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, Polycarp, Irenaeus, is, is a, a disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp is a disciple of John. So if Polycarp was a disciple of John, where he writes about this, he writes about John, he writes about uh, Irenaeus, if he writes about it and he died in like 120 or 150 AD, well, then they have to be. John has to have written his gospel prior to um, the third century, fourth century. I know this is a lot of information, but are you following me here? Are you seeing how this can help us understand, see how this can help us build our confidence in God's word? I know this is a lot of information, but bear with me. This is helpful. This is helpful for us to be confident in the reliability of this, the eyewitness testimony. We can be confident in this. with all of this information, we can affirm the Bible's accurate. We can affirm it's reliable. We can affirm that this is a, hus- a reliable, accurate, historical document. And if we can affirm that, then the next question comes up. Okay, it's a reliable document, but is it actually from God? Is it, is, is, did God actually write it? Are these words actually inspired? We'll look back at our text in 2 Peter chapter 1, 19-21, Remember, in 20 and 21, we see Peter say it specifically. He specifically says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's all from God. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God inspired the words that these men wrote. So in point number two, we're we're going to look through two more objections that deal with this. Write this down. Gain the confidence to defend the Bible as God's word. Point number two, gain the confidence to defend the Bible as God's word. The Bible claims to be directly from God written by man. Write this passage down when you're done writing that point. This passage down, right, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. And if you've been in church long enough, you've heard this verse. It says this, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God. And when it says breathed out, theonoustos, it's God breathed. It's inspired. It's from God, every word. All scripture, it's not a concept. It's every word comes from God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. For the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. So we can look at the Bible and trust that every single word that's here is from the Lord. Because God says so. That's where we have to start with this. I know that seems like a circular argument, but we have to start there. God said so. God says the Bible is from me. And we believe, as Christians, we can say, got it, yes, I affirm that. But of course, the skeptic's going to say, well, okay, well, there's more to this. But what does inspiration mean? I don't want to leave this without saying, what does inspiration mean? Am I talking about some poet that's like, reading a poem? Feel inspired to write you a poem. Or I felt inspired to write this song. No, I mean, that's not what we're talking about here. It's that God used the personalities, the characteristics, the vocabulary of all of these apostles to write what he wanted in the Bible. So what we got is exactly what God wanted. This is what God wanted right here. The original documents, copy, this is what God wanted. So that leads me to another objection. Objection number three, write this down. The Bible has been changed so many times. How do you believe it has so many errors? You heard that Objection. Yeah, Anthony has. Any of you guys heard that objection? Yeah. This, is, this is by man, right? It's been changed so many times. There's so many errors, so many problems. Okay. Well, if the Bible was written by God, it, it wouldn't contain errors, right? That's what they would say. If God wrote it, then it wouldn't have errors. It wouldn't have these problems. It wouldn't have any of these changes. Okay, is that true? Is that true? Can you answer that question if a friend at school walks up to you and says, pshh? God's changed, or the Bible's been changed. God didn't write it. You see that, you know, silly TikTok where the person says, actually, it's not from God. Actually, okay. Textual criticism, if you're not familiar with that, this has helped us with this. Textual criticism has been a helpful tool. And this is where we analyze the manuscripts that we have available to us to try to get to as close, at least, to the original documents that we had um, in the very beginning. Well, the skeptic's gonna say, we don't have the original letters. There's a problem there. We just have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. We don't have the original documents, so, you know, therefore, false, done, bam, I win. Okay, well, let's deal with that. You have to understand that, yes, we don't have the original documents, but we can prove, by textual criticism, that the copies that we have were within the first generation of the originals. So that's a big deal. And you have to understand, if these guys actually believed that these are words from God, you think they'd be careful with what they're writing down, with what they're copying? No, no, no. If it's from God, you know, writing like a doctor on their No. I mean, they're taking meticulous care. They are working so hard to make sure that they copy every single word accurately. And here's the thing, guys. It's not like we have two or three or four, or a hundred, or a thousand of these copies of the original manuscripts. We have 66,000 copies of the original manuscripts. So you look at me and you're like, right, I have no idea what that even means. Can you give me a frame of reference? I have no idea, 66,000, okay, great, is that good? Is that bad, is it, I don't know. Okay, have you guys heard of Homer's Iliad? Yeah. Homer's Iliad, right, it's about like the Greek history, maybe you've heard it in class, maybe you've heard it in history. This is actually one of the most reliable ancient Greek documents that we have today. Guess how many manuscripts they have? 1,900. 1900. That's right, Jaden. 1,900. (laughs) We have 66,000 of these manuscripts. And people are like, unreliable. Not believable. But hey, let me tell you about Homer's Iliad. We have a reliable source here. And textual criticism helps us get to the original, helps us get to what the Bible actually says. Of these manuscripts, these copies, when they stud, when there's, there's some variations to the text. So I want to talk a little bit about variance, a little bit about textual variance, because that's another question that's going to come up to you. And they're going to say, well, you know, it hasn't, it's been changed and it's missing verses. It's, you know, there's such, you know, we can't trust it. Because of all of these variants, all of these issues. Turn with me to Matthew seventeen, twenty one. Turn with me to Matthew seventeen, twenty-one. You there? You there? You got it? You there? Liars. You're not there. Where is it? If you got a King James Bible with you, maybe it's there, but... You got an ESV? It's not there, right? But it is in the footnotes. Look in the footnotes. You'll see it. Matthew 1721 is there. It goes from 20 to 22. Well, that's a textual variant. That's a variation. And here's the thing, the reason why we do that, well, let me, let me just back up a little bit. You understand that those verse numbers and the chapters, those are not inspired from God. Those were not in the original documents that the, the apostles wrote. Like, Paul wasn't like, oh, okay, 1 Corinthians 12, okay, here we go, verse 1. No, he just wrote it in Greek, okay? Those are not inspired. So These were added in the 1500s. So those are not inspired, first off. So if we're missing something, okay, the numbers don't matter. But why is there not a verse there? Why do we think, okay, why do we skip? Why do we take something out? I saw, it was funny. I saw something on uh, Instagram Reels. I think it was just last night. And it's funny because it worked perfect with what I'm talking about today. But there was this video. 88,000 people liked this video. There was this video of someone who's like, man, it's all a conspiracy, man. It's all a conspiracy. Look, look, this Bible, this is, these are the new translations of the Bible. I have this original from like 1950s, the King James Version. Watch, check this out. This Bible doesn't have this verse. Look, turn there. You got, not there. And then they went to the ESV. Look, oh man, it's not there. Look, they're trying to get us, man. It's a conspiracy, man. Look, my my grandma's Bible though, from the 50s, this is what they said, it has the verse. What what are they hiding from us? What are they not trying to tell us? It's because this person doesn't understand that textual variance, we can understand what the original was. We can look back and see, okay, textual variants are, are not an issue for us. In fact, textual variants, variations in the text, the reason why there's variations, because remember, there's 66,000 manuscripts. If you got a guy that like, was writing on his copy, he sneezed and he accidentally put a little like, line in an E and, and it made it look like an A or something, right? Okay, that's a textual variant. Because now we look at the manuscript and we see, okay, there's an issue here, because this is not exactly what I have over here. And that's 99 point something percent of the variants that we have are literally just, like, letters that are missing. Or someone added an A, or someone added a the. And here's the thing, guys. Textual criticism helps us understand, and this is where your confidence in the Bible can increase a little bit here, is we can get back to the original to the 99-point-something percent of what the original said because we can use textual criticism to, ver- to see these variants, to see, okay, where were these mistakes? Where were, these, where were these things? And we can identify exactly what the mistake is. And that's why I took you to Matthew 17, 21. That's not there. Because a lot of the historians, a lot of textual critics can look at that and say, that wasn't in the original. It's not among the popular manuscripts, the ones that we trust and believe are actually from the apostles. Have you ever wondered about, like, John 8, Mark 16, ending of Mark? Right, you know, as a brackets, and it says, not in the earliest possible manuscripts. Right, we don't trust this is original. The ending of Mark 16, you know, where they're talking about, like, playing with snakes and drinking poison. Yeah, probably obvious, but Mark 16, why do we not believe that? Well, because that's a major textual variant. There's only three big variants that we have issues with, but they don't deal with any type of big doctrines. Right, but you understand what I'm saying? If we know the problems that we have with the Bible, and we can say, not true, not original, then we can look at this and be like, wow, this is a well-documented, historical document, reliable information, because we can look and even say, we don't think that's true. We don't think that's original. But all of these other things, we can be certain and affirm, yes, true, good. And even the things that we cannot say, these are original, have no issues with with uh, major doctrines as these delicious treats that she gives us every Christmas. And I thought, you know, she, this is unique. These are great. Uh, apparently, I found out that these aren't super unique, but hers are better than yours, I guarantee you, right? <laughs> They're called peanut clusters. Now, maybe if I give you the, the recipe, you'll be like, oh, <clears throat> we've, I've done that before. It's chocolate, peanuts, and uh, butterscotch, Right? So let's say my grandma, and she is so, I asked her, I asked her this summer, or this, this uh, winter, I asked her at Christmas, like, Grandma, can I get the recipe for that? I want to make some for my church. And she's like, yeah. Yeah, sure, yeah, I'll get that to you. She is like a trap. She doesn't want to give it to anyone yet. But anyways, let's just hypothetically say my grandma wanted to give us the recipe to the uh, peanut clusters, and there's four kids in th- th- that she has, and she said, okay, all right, guys, carefully write down... The recipe to the peanut clusters. Write down two things of chocolate, three things of butterscotch, and five peanuts per thing. And then you're going to freeze it for six hours. And they took their pens and they said, good. They're looking at the original. They say, okay, good. Got it down. And then grandma passes away. Now we don't have the original recipe. It got lost when we were getting rid of all these things. Well, we don't have the original recipe anymore. Can we be sure that we have the recipe that grandma made? Well, yeah, because we look at the kids who looked at the document and said, oh, yeah, yeah, this is what we what we have. Now, where we run into some issues is when my aunts, my uncles, the four of them, they go and they, and they give it to their kids, and their kids start writing it down. And then my cousin, he accidentally writes, you know, 2.5 parts of chocolate. Well, where's 15 kids that got the recipe, let's just say, right? And 14 of them are saying, well, no, it's two things of chocolate. And in fact, they can bake it, and they make it, and they freeze it. And it's like, yeah, yeah, see, this tastes better than yours. This is different than yours. It's proven. Well, then we can look at my cousin's mistake and say, oh, okay, yeah, well, it's just two. He just, I don't know. He, he didn't know what he was doing, and he wrote this down. That's kind of what we're dealing with with textual criticism. We're not going to the copies of the copies of the copy. We're going to the original, right? Or we're going to a copy of the original. But we're going all the way to the beginning. We're looking at that, and we're saying, well, I'm going to copy this. That's what we're dealing with with the, the Greek manuscripts. It's like, I can trust I have grandma's recipe of the peanut clusters because I know these are, this has been reliably handed down. And that little error that my cousin made, it's not an issue because we have all of these other copies of the recipe. This is the point. The point is that the objection doesn't stand. The objection that the Bible's been changed so many times has so many errors. Well, that's just a straw man argument. This is just, it's silly. You guys heard of what a straw man argument is? It's like, you know, someone sets up this straw man, it looks like a real man, but then you can just burn it down. That's what a straw man argument is. It's a silly argument. It's stupid. It can be seen right through. This leads us to the last objection. There's a last objection here. Objection number four. The Bible was written by man. Can't be relied upon. God didn't write it, man. It's those guys. The men wrote it. And men, they make errors. They've sinned. They do problems. They make errors. They make issues. You guys heard of this objection before? Bible's written by man. It's not God's word, man. Is it true? Is it true that the Bible's written by man, not God? Well, I mean, in some degree, yeah, of course. The men wrote the letters. But God, remember, 2 Timothy 3, inspired those words. First we can turn to archaeological evidence and see okay well there's if if Bi- the bible's written by man okay great but we can corroborate everything that they're saying by looking at archaeological evidence and let this build confidence in your in, in the word of god for you where we look at archaeological evidence like the dead sea scrolls in 1947 where a young shepherd boy is walking down the uh, in the field and he's with his sheep and he chucks a rock into a cave and it breaks this vessel and these scrolls come out and hey look at that these scrolls are from The 600 B.C. And what we have in those scrolls are actually almost identical to what we have in the Bible today. So we can see, based on textual criticism and what we talked about, that these manuscripts have been accurately copied and taken down to us today. There's things like the Tell Dan Stella Archaeologists actually discovered this uh, this uh, this manuscript, or I'm sorry, this stone that had David, King David's name inscribed on it. Some people say, "Oh yeah, the Old Testament—that's just myth." You know, King David? No way. Well, we can see from archaeological findings that actually David did exist, right? Nazareth, Capernaum—all of these cities that are proven to be real cities that the Bible talks about. Archaeology is helpful in us determining that. I mean, even Israel, right? Who, who's been to Israel before? Who's been to Israel? Pastor John? One guy, two guys? Dave? None of the students? None. Of you, I, they, if you got to go to Israel, go to Israel. That's, a, that's, a great, that's one of my dream trips. I want to go to Israel. I want to see all of this in person. But Israel itself—that's a testament to the reliability of the Bible. Look at all these places that are still standing, are still there, like in ruins that we can see, and like that's the place that the Bible talks about. And it's funny because archaeologists go out there, and it's like every time they sneeze, something gets proven from the Bible. So, you oh, oh, wow! Look, a coin from from Pilate. It's it's just insane how much, and we've barely scratched the surface out there with archaeological findings. Second, fulfilled prophecies. Fulfilled prophecies are powerful evidence that the Bible was written by God. Now, of course, I can't go through all of the prophecies because there's over 300 alone about Jesus, but there's so many uh, prophecies, specific prophecies, that have, have uh, been fulfilled in the New Testament and in the Old Testament and even today. In Acts 3.18, it says this. Write Acts 3.18 down. It says, What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that that His Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. So all of those prophecies of the Old Testament, Jesus has fulfilled. And some of them that I want to look at specifically: Jesus' birth, His death, His resurrection, brought up in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament. So think about that. Think about that for a second. How can if this was made up? How can Jesus know where he, he can determine where he's going to be born? Does that make sense? Right, like if Jesus is the Messiah, he proved to be the Messiah, and the Old Testament talks about that. And they say, no, Jesus just did. He just made it so he fit those Old Testament prophecies. Okay, well, it prophesies about his birth, in the location of his birth, and it says that actually, uh, born of a virgin, prophesied in Isaiah seven fourteen, and then that's fulfilled in Luke 1, 35. Remember, Mary was a virgin. It says where he's born in Bethlehem. That's in Micah five two. Prophesied in Micah 5.2. And then it's fulfilled in Matthew 2. He was born in Bethlehem. That actually happened. He can't choose to do that. I mean, of course he's God, but that's not what we're talking about. He can choose to do that in that sense. He's a sacrifice for sinners. Prophesied, now look, this is written in 700 B.C., Isaiah 53, 3-5. Isaiah 53, 3-5. It says this. He was despised and rejected by men So Isaiah is prophesying exactly what happened on the cross. Exactly what happened. And that was fulfilled, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Matthew 27, all of the accounts of Jesus' death and crucifixion. Isaiah, 700 B.C., and then in like 33 or so A.D., this, this occurred. Tell me Jesus can prophesy his own death? He can make that all happen? Well, to the skeptic, he's like, okay, well, that's, yeah, that's kind of convincing to us, it's like, well, God can do anything, so great, that's awesome. The resurrection prophesied Psalm 22, Psalm 16, fulfilled in Matthew 28, right? These are just a few. These are just a few of the fulfilled prophecies that we can see from the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament that should strengthen your confidence in this book. can't be written by man if we're seeing fulfilled prophecy. It can't be. There's something different here. So I know this is a lot of information. I know this seems probably, some of it might have went over your head. But the point is, is that if this is God's word, if this is God's word, the main application we take from this is that you have to submit to everything that this says. Every single one of you, whether you're a skeptic, whether you believe this wholeheartedly, you have to submit to this because this is from God and it can be proven to be from God. And the next time you have a skeptic coming up to you and questioning you and saying, no, you're wrong, false, whatever, or you have influence from false teaching on social media or at school or with your friends, you can feel equipped to answer those questions. Because sometimes, you know, people will try to undermine and say, look, Christians, they don't even have answers. They can't even prove what what they believe themselves. But all of us can. And you can be confident in that. You can go to your God's word and prove that this is from God. You can prove that it's a historical, reliable document. And again, that should change the way that you live your life. If this is actually from God, that means that you should be submitting to it. That means you should be memorizing it. You should be consuming it. You should be studying it. You should be applying it into your lives. Tell the world about it. I hope that instilled some level of confidence for you guys this morning. Let me pray about that now. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing that, of course, you tell us that it, your word is from you. That we don't have to even deal with any of these objections because we know as Christians that you say, God, that the Bible is from you. And we can trust that. But we're grateful to you for the grace that you show us every single day and through all of these uh, research tactics and all of these um, apologetic tactics that we can go to your word And we can trust and be confident that it is from you. That we can believe without a shadow of a doubt that this is from you, God. So thank you for that. And help this to spark a a newfound commitment and devotion and reliance upon your word. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.